Most of us enjoy a finish line. We like to know when our job is done. Uh, there's a lot of ways that this might come out in our lives. Um, when we run a race, those of you who've run like a 5K, unless you're one of those really weird runner people, you don't run a sixth K when the fifth one is over. You get to that line and then you go, awesome, and then you go sit down because you're tired. Uh, our work weeks, we like to know when I have worked enough for the day so that I can punch out and I can leave. That feeling is even fuller on a Friday when we're ready for a weekend. We want to know when have I done enough that my boss will be happy with me and I can just walk out the door and be done. Uh, Fran and I had a teacher in college who the way he did the scoring in his course is that there were um, he did his grading scale based on a thousand point scale. So if you got 900 points, you got an A. If you had 800 points, you got a B, so on and so forth. But there was 1,100 possible points in the semester. This was his way of not having to mess with extra credit. He said, there's extra credit baked in the syllabus. There's 1,100 possible points. If you want an A, you only need 900 of them. And of course, there were some people like myself who goes, well, the worst score I've ever gotten on a test is this. And so if I subtract that from 900, and as soon as I had crossed the threshold where I could perform the worst I ever had on a test and still get an A for a semester, what did I do? I quit. I stopped doing any more work because... Why would you do extra? We like to see where the finish line is and where we can stop. Um, and what this can do to us if we're not careful is it leads to a checklist type of living. What are the things that I have to get done and checked off in order to do the minimum to not get in trouble? We talked about this maybe a couple weeks ago in the sermon. This can uh, sneak out into our private lives and our personal lives as well. What is the least that I can do for Valentine's Day and know that my spouse is not going to be upset that I didn't do more for Valentine's Day? Uh, how long do we have to stay at your parents' house until we can leave and they won't feel like we got out of here too quickly? Um, I would love to volunteer, but what's the minimum volunteer requirement so I don't get stuck there all day? Uh, and then, if we're honest, it can get even a little deeper and a little darker, and we can ask questions like, at what point do I not have to worry about that person? How annoying do I have to really put up with? How much do I have to really overlook before I can let them have my full mind and what I really think of them. In relationships, we can do this same finish line thing where we ask ourselves, what is the point at which I can stop caring? Because caring about this person is a real pain in the neck and I'd like to be able to be finished with it so I can just go home. Or maybe it's the scale on which we judge whether or not someone's worth our time. That person is just so whatever that I just am not going to even bother. It's going to be too much. I just can't handle it. And when we start to do this, it can start to crumble at our relationships. We've been going through the book of Romans, um, and Paul has been, uh, particularly with the passages where Paul talks about how to get along well with other people. 
And if you were with us two weeks ago, we talked about chapter 14. And there was a specific conversation about doctrine and about when a, a disputable matter comes up, how you handle it. And Paul's big advice was on a lot of these disputable things, he picked for their situation the kinds of food you eat and the kind of holidays you celebrate. He said, on those types of issues, keep it to yourself and God. Just stay quiet about it. Don't cause a fuss. And more importantly, don't exercise your liberty in a way that destroys what God's work has done. And we talked about how so many of us as Christians want to be orthodoxy man that runs to saving all of Christendom from this false teaching. And in the end, we just uh, we go too far. And Paul says, you don't need to be all up in each other's business about that kind of stuff. And today we're going to read the passage that directly follows that where Paul continues on this topic. But it's as if he's anticipating this finish line approach to life. And it's almost as if you can hear the readers in their brains going, well, you're saying that I should put up if they eat the wrong kind of food and I should put up with them if they celebrate the wrong kind of holidays. When is enough enough? When, do I, when can I stop putting up with it and start being more difficult? When can I cause a ruckus? When can I stop shushing and actually like get into somebody's face? And Paul kind of transitions into, I think, that topic. Verse 1 of, uh, that's not Luke, it's Romans. I made a mistake on my slide. Romans 15, verse 1 through 2. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So Paul uh, goes back to a little bit of what he said last week about the weak and the strong and how to get along with people you disagree with. And he says, in the end, you do not live for your own pleasure. You do not live life so that you can get what you want all the time. Your life is to be lived to help and benefit other people. And he immediately goes to Jesus. He says, Jesus lived the kind of life that Jesus took insults and took um, maltreatment from other people for the sake of us. And in the same way, we need to be the kind of people who will put up with a lot. When is enough enough? Well, Jesus said that enough enough was carrying a cross. For our sins and enduring the abuse that he endured at the cross. And so if that is where he would go for us, then it's probably not for us to say, you know, she's kind of annoying. I just don't think I'm going to deal with her anymore. That is a far lower standard than the standard which Jesus uh, would have for us. And then Paul tells us that there's these two things that we get from Scripture that helps us deal with that. We get endurance and we get encouragement. Uh, for me, this is much like that uh, metaphor we started with of the finish line in a race. If you've ever run in a race, it's great to hear people cheer for you. There's an unbelievably uh, helpful, like, uh, emotional, psychological thing that happens when someone's like, you can do it, you can do it, that you kind of pep up in your step and you run a little bit faster for the next eighth of a mile because you're being encouraged, you're being cheered for. 
And Paul says that we get encouragement from Scripture, but also that we get endurance, that Scripture just makes us more capable of dealing with more things as we try to figure out where the boundary and the limit is for us. Uh, Romans 15, verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says that as you run this race, as you get this encouragement and you, uh, as you receive the encouragement and the endurance, and as you continue to run along that race, part of what's going to happen is you're going to be more shaped into the image of Jesus. You're going to be more like Jesus in how you deal with other people. And so that starts to change you. It starts to develop who you are as a person. And the result is that it brings unity. Um, this is something we talked about uh, a little bit a couple weeks ago. I remember, Carolyn, particularly you mentioned this, like within marriages, that when we all have a common goal, and that common goal is to treat people like Jesus wants us to treat uh, others, we'll find that we start having more unity in our community, too. Because we're striving for the same thing. Uh, you can have a lot of unity. We talk about this in sports, uh, particularly uh, if you watch uh, football teams get better or worse. Often we say that winning fixes a lot of problems. That teammates who dislike each other, when they're winning, they're best friends. And when they're losing, everybody else is an idiot. Because they're either achieving or not achieving their goals. And as a church, as we strive towards treating people like Jesus, it shapes our character so it's easier to get along. You and I are moving in the same direction. We're going to the same place. We're on the same road, the same path. And it's, our, it's when we have different objectives that often we get separated and divided as a group of people. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul here lays down the massive challenge. Where's the finish line? When can I stop? When do I not have to care anymore? At what point have I checked off the checklist of how to treat other people? And his standard, very simply, is you need to accept other people to the same degree to which Christ accepted you. Now this is heavy. When you came to know Jesus, uh, was there a point where Jesus said, you are too self-righteous, you're too sinful, you're too annoying, you're too immature, you're too legalistic, you're too ignorant, you're too whatever to be welcomed into the family of God. No. This is the beauty of Jesus, is that he comes, uh, just as we sing in the old hymn, just as I am, the spot where I am, in the place of brokenness where I first came to know Jesus, he said, that's okay, you're welcome, let's work on it together. 
And Paul says that is the standard for us when we get along with other people. These Jews and Gentiles are trying to get along, but in the back of their head they go, this is creating a lot of cognitive dissonance for me. I'm feeling very uncomfortable. I don't like the fact that these people who eat shellfish or these people who celebrate Caesar's birthday or whatever are going to church with me. And I'm going to do my best, Paul, but at what point can I just cut, you know, just cut bait and leave and give up? And Jesus goes, you need to work as hard to accept them as Jesus has worked to accept you. And so whatever failings that you have that Jesus has overlooked, you need to similarly overlook them and other people. And the challenge is huge for us when that is the way it's put. And Paul then kind of pulls out the camera a little bit and says, let's look at the big picture here of why this is so significant. Why is it important for you to get along with other people? Um, and he says that it, it just changes who we are. It's part of God's mission. What Paul is asking us to do here is to drop this calculus that some of us do in our brain. Okay, this is the way some of us look at a person and we decide if we're going to invest time and energy in that person or not. We look at them and are like, okay, it looks like they're not going to ask me for money, but it seems like they're a little emotionally needy. They'll probably text me after hours, which is going to drive me crazy. But at the same hand, it looks like they're a good cook, right? We start doing all this kind of little math about is this person somebody I'm going to invest in or not? And Paul says, you can't do that because your standard is simple. Accept them like Jesus. So Jesus' math is, are they a human being? Yes. Will I be good to them? Yes. And then he's done with it. That's all there is to it. And it doesn't have to be that complex. And when we do those things and we do it the right way, it feeds into the mission that God has for our world. Um, Paul talks here about the glory of God. Or the honor of God. Some churches talk about the fame of God. And Paul says that when you treat other people right, God's approval rating goes up. If you haven't noticed, we live in a culture where God is not always sort of universally loved and accepted and welcomed into people's lives and hearts and thoughts. And Paul leaves us with this very damning critique that can be very frustrating. Is it possible that part of the reason people don't think well of God is because Christians are such miserable people to one another? Because he makes very clear, if you guys can get along, everybody around you is going to go, God's awesome. If they can see a bunch of Jews and Gentiles who are treating each other good and kindly and generously and graciously, they'll go, wow, that's really incredible. And all of a sudden, people are going to go, you know, there must be something to that spirituality, something to that religion, something to that church they're part of. If those people can get along, because nowhere else in our neighborhood do those kind of people get along. And Paul then shows, as he you know, gives us the big vision, that this is kind of the steps of how things were, were always arranged. He says that Jesus came and he preached to the Jews in order that in doing so he would fulfill the promise to Abraham and thus the nations would glorify God. Now you'll remember that one of the promises to Abraham was and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. 
And so Paul says this is the way God accomplishes his big purposes for the planet is the coming of Jesus to preach to this one group of people and by doing so to fulfill the promises to Abraham and then expand out beyond the family of Abraham to all nations of the world. There is a direct connection between us treating people well and more and more people coming to Jesus. In a way, it's kind of this upward spiral scenario that we get where the more we do it right, the more it works better and so on and so forth. Uh, the way this works uh, is something like this. When we treat other people well, it forms us into the image of Jesus. And the more we're like Jesus, the more we treat people well. And the more we treat people well, the more we're like Jesus. And the more we're like Jesus, the more we treat people well. Right? And it just continues to grow and grow and grow. But then on a larger level, similarly, when we treat people well, that brings honor to God. And the honor that has brought God, the fame that's brought God, attracts new people into the community. And when we treat those new people well, that gets God more honor, which brings in more people who we then treat well, that brings in more honor and more. And it just, it gets bigger and it gets bigger and it gets bigger. But so often it begins and ends with something very simple of, are you going to treat other people with kindness and grace and dignity and acceptance? Because if you don't, it spirals down the other way, where you reject someone and it gives God a bad attitude, and then people are nasty about us, so we're nasty to them, and then God gets a bad reputation, so they're nasty to us, so we're nasty to them, and it spirals the other way. And so Paul ends this by going, where does it end for you? It ends with you being as warm and as accepting as Jesus is. Um, I think about this just really practically. There is no place in our society, this is Caleb's opinion, there is no place in our society still where we have great race relations in the world. There is not any entity, whether it's our city government or our nonprofits, who will tell you, yeah, we think we've done really, really well at getting people to get along across racial boundaries. We, just, we still stink at it. It's still a very hard problem for our culture. Do you imagine the honor that it would bring God and the interest it would bring in the church if the church was known as the place where people get along best instead of the place where people remain the most segregated? I think about this in politics. Um, we increasingly live in a country where people cannot stand each other if they vote differently. Can you imagine how incredible people go, listen, church is the one place you can go and they are not going to fuss at you about who you voted on. They're going to treat you well and love you. And you're going to be able to get along with people who disagree with you. I can tell you we're not that place, right? <laughs> because we still see how everybody gets it all up in each other's businesses and all of these kinds of things. And Paul says if we strive to be like Jesus, it's going to lead to this knock-on effect where literally the whole world will be changed for the better. And it starts with accepting and welcoming one another. Because every time we do it, it becomes a lesson for the next time. Every time someone new comes into our community, 
be it someone from the neighborhood who's never been here before, or somebody who's a friend of somebody else, or Blackstone and this, you know, this infusion we're getting of this other church. When we love those people well and integrate them well into our community, it then helps us do it better the next time, which will also make it more likely that we'll get a next time to do it. These things just snowball and avalanche on us. So what's the finish line look like? Instead of what do I have to do? What does God, what's my minimum expectation to stay happy with God? Um, I think that the finish lines are questions like this. How can I treat that person so that uh, when they're done dealing with me, they're going to give honor to God because it was such a good interaction? How is my behavior towards other people going to help them see how valuable Jesus is in my life? How can I interact with others so that Jesus' compassion is just evident, that it's just coming out my eyeballs because it's so I'm so saturated with the love of God that they experience it when they experience me? These are the kinds of finish lines that push us further and further and further and deeper into love and understanding, and it widens our arms so that we might be more accepting. It's my hope that that vision will guide us and push us as we continue on as a church. Uh, if you have questions, go ahead and start writing those down. If you haven't already, uh, we're going to do a song. So, uh, our main question, uh, one question we had here. Uh, it often feels like being kind and good to others doesn't effectively turn the corner, encourage them coming to Jesus. What are next steps to do more? Uh, so there's a couple things about this. I think part of what Paul is arguing today that is m not just kindness generally, but specifically the relationships between Jews and Gentiles, groups that do not get along in the ancient world, that would bring such honor that it would cause people to come in. This is in line with what Paul talks about in Romans 9 through 11, where he suggests that the Gentiles' experience of God's goodness will cause jealousy in the Jewish people, and that we'll have this influx of Jewish people returning to the church just because they're jealous at the experience the Gentiles are having. Um, so I would say that on a, on a bigger, grander level, one of the problems is that many of us are pretty nice people, but we continue to be nice people to other people that are in a pretty tight geographic, socioeconomic, ethnic circle that we have. And the church has just not been as good as it should be about creating bridges and connections and relationships for people who would not meet any other place. Ideally, the church would be kind of a place where you're like, I've got friends at church that if I wasn't a Christian, I never would have met because we would have been stratified by what neighborhood we live in or how much money we make or how much education we have or things like that. So I think that's one of the things for the church that we have to figure out better ways to be and why we want to continue to be good at, at outreach, we want to continue to be good at inviting new people and experiences into our church. I think the other way we can do more is that we can also work on the witness part where God gets good credit for things. So occasionally, you know, I don't know, I'll brag on Fran, not because I'm trying to be narcissistic, but because I love her and I need an example. Uh, there'll be a times where somebody at Fran Abbs school needs to be watched for an, an hour or two after school because their parents have an appointment and they can't pick up the kid from school. And Fran will go, okay, yeah, sure, then come over to our place and play. 
And so they come over and they play and they have a good time. And the person comes over and they go, I felt so bad. I mean, you got four kids and you took a fifth one. I just don't know how you do it. And that is the point at which Fran goes, you know, God's been so good to us. And I try to live like Jesus in my life. And so it's just my way to share Jesus love with you. Now, that might feel weird for you, but those little micro witnessing moments where we go, hey, just and it's not pushing anything on anybody. It's saying you want to know how I tick. The reason I do what I do is because of what God has done in my life. It's not saying that they have to, to, to take it on. It's not trying to push them into a church. But it's saying the way I live my life and my story is it's connected with Jesus. So often we do things and people go, oh, thank you so much. That was so wonderful. Can't believe you went over and beyond. And we kind of just pocket that. We go, well, I'm glad to help out. And that's the moment where we go, yeah, you know, God's given me so much in my life that I feel like I need to give back like Jesus wants me to. And there's that moment where that then sticks in someone's mind and they go, that was a really weird way for them to respond. But then again, they were really generous. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there's something, you know, like if nothing else, it's good PR. Hey, Christians do nice things. Like if we can create that synapse so that it's like moving a little more frequently in someone's brain, that's a good thing. And so I think that's maybe little ways we can do that.